Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody here this morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. Uh, For those of you who are visiting with us, we want to give you a special welcome and thank you for spending this Lord's Day with us. We uh, pray that our time here this morning will bless you and encourage you and edify you in your faith um, in Jesus Christ. I I know uh, Justin just prayed, but let me pray for us as well as we begin here this morning and uh, just commit ourselves to the Lord. Father, we do come before you this morning. We thank you for these and this service and the early service who've uh, followed our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, put their faith in him and been baptized to identify themselves with him this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, they will go forth from here strengthened by your spirit to walk in the new life that they have in Jesus. And uh, Father, I pray for all of us here that our our faith will be renewed this morning as we see these who've come forward and, and given testimony of their faith in Christ and that we too will, will walk in newness of life that we have in our Savior. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this uh, new study that we're embarking upon this morning, the book of Daniel. Uh, Father, we thank you for your inspired and errant word that you've given to us. And uh, Father, I pray for myself and uh, for my own family and for all of us here that we won't be the same people at the end of this study that we were at the beginning of it, uh, that we'll be changed and transformed by you, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, that you use uh, your word in the book of Daniel, Lord, to, to teach us, to instruct us, uh, to humble us, and to exalt yourself. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you now for this study. And that we pray that from the beginning to the end, the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an exciting morning for me and our church. I mean, these baptisms, that's an exciting thing that we do um, every so often, every few months here in the church. But it's also exciting because we're beginning a new book study. And for those of you who are maybe new to our church, this is kind of what we do. We'll we'll do some different series between, but we love to go through and study books of the Bible. And we're going to study the book of Daniel together. Um, Some people have asked me, were you going to do the whole book? Or a lot of people just do the first six chapters, which are the stories. But no, we're going to do the whole thing, all 12 chapters. And uh, we've titled this series on Daniel, uh, the, the End Time and the Meantime. And uh, I want to mention that uh, Chris McLaughlin, uh, Chris is here in our service this morning, did the artwork uh, for this series, and it's a great blessing to have you do that for us, Chris. Great job. And uh, I love it. It looks great. And um, it, having Chris uh, do it makes it even more special to me and I know to our church as well. Uh, one other thing I want to mention, I've, I've had some notes uh, downloaded there on the on, uh, or on, uh, put, put online that you can download on the book of Daniel. Um, it's about 80 pages single-spaced on the book of Daniel. Uh, very extensive notes. Um, they'll really supplement your study if you want to download those and uh, read those as we're going along. I think they'll be a great encouragement to you as we go through this study. So uh, you can avail yourself of that online. Well, beginning this series this morning takes me back a lot of years because uh, Daniel is the first sermon series on a book of the Bible that I brought here at Faith Bible Church uh, 29 years ago this fall. So I think it was the last, either the last Sunday of October or the first Sunday of November in the fall of 1991 uh, that we uh, brought a series on the book of Daniel. But I think this is a great time for us now to revisit this book. Now, I think this is a really timely study. Now, what I want to do uh, here at the outset, I'll read the, uh, the first couple of verses here in a minute, but I want to just give three simple reasons why we should study the book of Daniel. There's a lot of them, obviously, but I just want to mention three. The first one is Daniel's situation parallels our situation today in many ways. Daniel lived as part of a believing minority and a secular pagan culture. 
uh, much like what we're seeing and experiencing today in our culture. I mean, our culture today, we're witnessing a dangerous turning of the tide. Uh, we're in danger of being swallowed up by secularism. And increasingly, we find ourselves as exiles in our own country, strangers in our own land. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because the Apostle Peter told us we're exiles and, and strangers on this earth. But I think one way we could put it as we look around in this world today, for those of us especially who are a little bit older, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, this is a different world that we live in today. And the book of Daniel shows us how to live faithfully in exile, how to live lives of commitment, conviction, courage, and clarity in our modern Babylonian culture. So Daniel shows us how to live in the meantime in a pagan culture as we await the Lord's coming in the end time. So it's telling us how to stand tall in a fallen world. A second reason we need to study the book of Daniel is Daniel's prophecies may soon be fulfilled. Many of the prophecies we're going to study in the book of Daniel have already come to pass, but there are many that still await fulfillment. And there's an amazing correspondence between Daniel's unfulfilled prophecies and what we see happening in our world today. Current events point toward the prophecies of Daniel. Just give you a couple of, uh, of thoughts uh, to, to hang this on. The Jewish people have been regathered to their land. Since 1948, Jewish people have been pouring back to the modern state of Israel. And Israel has to exist as a nation for these end-time prophecies to be fulfilled. Um, also, uh, in Daniel 9.27, we're going to talk about a peace treaty that the coming world ruler, the Antichrist, is going to make with the people of Israel. Reminds us of a lot of what's happening with a lot of uh, peace treaties and deals being made in the Middle East today. It's going to tell us in the book of Daniel about a coming world, one world government, a global empire that's going to be led by one ruler, the Antichrist. The globalism we see in our world points toward that. But anyway, on and on we could go, but the point is uh, the signs are lighting up like runway lights as the coming of Christ draws near, and that's an exciting reason to study this book, to understand what God says about the future and how our world today points toward those prophecies. Well, one final reason, this is my favorite reason that we need to study the book of Daniel, is that Daniel's God is our God. The God we read about in the book of Daniel is the same God that we worship and serve, and he's still on the throne. It's easy to read the book of Daniel and all the great things God did and say, well, that was a, a God back then, but he's a different God than the God we serve. No, he's the same God. Daniel's God is our God, and he's a God who's in charge. He's in charge of individuals, families, nations. He's in charge of the present and the future. He's in charge of the good times and the bad times. He's in charge of great victories in our life, but he's also in charge of the shocking setbacks. And he's the sovereign God who controls all things. The God of Daniel is our God, and that ought to increase our confidence and give us comfort and solace in these times we find ourselves in. Well, with those thoughts in mind this morning, what I want to do is take a flyover of the backdrop and the setting of this book to kind of get our bearings in the book of Daniel so we can uh, dive into this book next week. Uh, we're just going to uh, look at the first couple of verses here in a little bit, but I want to fill in some background information, and we'll, we'll be doing more of this as we go along, but I just want to kind of set the table this morning. So let me read these first two verses to set the stage for us. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Well, thanks be to God for his inspired um, inerrant word. History tells us that the day before the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon stood gazing on the field of battle, and he described to his commander uh, the strategy for the campaign. And then he declared that at the end of the day, that England would be at the feet of France, and the Duke of Wellington, who was leading the British forces, would be the prisoner of Napoleon. After a pause, Napoleon's commanding officer boldly stated, he said, Sir, we must not forget that man proposes, but God disposes. To which Napoleon, with arrogant pride, replied, I want you to understand, sir, Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. And commenting on that statement later, Victor Hugo said this, After that moment, Waterloo was lost. For God sent rain and hail so that the troops could not be maneuvered as he had planned. And on the night of the battle, it was Napoleon who was prisoner of Wellington, and France was at the feet of England. Man proposes, but God disposes. And in many ways, there's no better summary of the book of Daniel than those words. God disposes. God determines. God directs. God dictates history. God is the sovereign God who rules and overrules in nations and in kingdoms and in the affairs of everyday life. He overrules and rules in kingdoms, but he does it in your life and my life as well. And I think in some ways, there's no uh, better, more important truth for you and for me to grasp in these days in which we find ourselves than that truth. So let, let's dive into Daniel here together. Now, before we get to these two verses, I want to take care of a bit of housekeeping and kind of give the setting of this book. I want to look at the author of the book, the audience that he's writing to, uh, the aim or the message of this book, and then the arrangement or kind of the, the overall structure before we get into it. So let's start with the author of this book. Um, Daniel is the human author of this book. Um, Daniel's name means God is my judge, and it's a, a fitting name for the content in this book. Now, we don't find Daniel's name in the first six chapters in the first person. It's not till chapter 7, verse 4, that Daniel will say, and I watched the visions in the night. He's mentioned a lot in the first six chapters, but he's mentioned in the first person in chapter 7. Now, you might say, well, of course, Daniel's the author of this book. I mean, it says here in my Bible, the book of Daniel. So why do we need to talk any more about this? Well, we need to mention this briefly because most scholars today deny that Daniel is the human author of this book. They hold that somebody wrote this book about 400 years after Daniel died. They believe it was written in about 150 or 160 B.C., after most of the events had already happened. Now, this has been called by many people Daniel in the critic's den, and I like that because not long after Daniel got out of the lion's den, Daniel gets thrown into the critic's den where the critics say that Daniel's not really the author of this book. It was someone long after the fact. Now, why do people deny that Daniel wrote this book? Well, they have about three or four main reasons, but really the one that kind of undergirds all of it is they have an anti-supernatural bias. 
That is, they believe that Daniel could never have predicted these things before they came to pass, so somebody had to have written them after the fact. In other words, the prophecies in Daniel are so detailed and definite that scholars have a difficult time that Daniel, believing Daniel could have written them ahead of time. Now, I'll throw a little Latin phrase on you here that, uh, that speaks of this. It's Vaticinium ex eventu. It means speaking after the fact. And that's what they believe Daniel is. If you read scholars, they'll say this is just ex eventu. It's after the events happen. So most modern scholars believe that the book of Daniel is not prophecy, but is history. So somebody pretending to be Daniel came along 400 years after Daniel died, after many of the events had already happened, and wrote this book. Now, I totally reject that view. I believe that Daniel the prophet wrote this book in the 6th century uh, B.C., you say, well, why do you believe that? Let me just give you four simple reasons. One is, and this is a, a kind of an archaeological reason, they found copies of the book of Daniel in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Some of you have been to Israel, been down that area of the Dead Sea where they found those scrolls and the caves there. There's a copy of Daniel that dates to about 100 B.C., now, if Daniel was written in about 150 B.C., that means it had to be written, copied, widely disseminated, and this remote uh, group of people down in Qumran had to get that book as part of their collection and consider that book to be sacred and significant enough to include it with the rest of Scripture. Now, I know in our culture today things move quickly, but for back in that day, that would be an astounding miracle for that to happen. And even people that deny that Daniel wrote the book realize that's a problem for all of that to happen within 50 years. So just the copies of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls argue against it being written just 50 years earlier. Here's a second reason. This is just a practical reason to me. Would God have a book in the Bible that's deceptive? Think about that for a moment. If somebody else wrote Daniel who simply posed as Daniel, then it's deceptive because the person writing this book claims to be Daniel. Now, it's unthinkable to me that God would include a book in Scripture, a book about how to live a godly life in the midst of a pagan culture that's a deceptive book. And you talk about an irony, that'd be sad, wouldn't it? So it wouldn't make any sense to me to have someone uh, writing this book other than Daniel. A third reason, I'd say this is the most important one, is Jesus said that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, as was written by Daniel the prophet, flee into the wilderness. Several times in the book of Daniel, we're going to see this idea of an abomination of desolation. Jesus said, Daniel the prophet spoke those words. And then here's a final reason. If we believe in divine inspiration of the Bible, if we believe that God is the ultimate author of it, then we have no problem with God prophesying things ahead of time. Again, the problem for many who deny Daniel's authorship is they don't believe in a God who inspired this book and can tell the future with unerring precision. And to me, again, there's a tragic irony here because this is a book about the absolute awesome transcendence and sovereignty of God, the God that rules and overrules, and yet scholars read this book and don't think that that God could act accurately predict the future. But we believe in a sovereign God who knows the future, who controls the future, and who communicates to us so we can know what's coming. 
And over in Daniel 2.22, Daniel's going to say this about God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. That's the God who uh, empowered Daniel to write this book. So the Holy Spirit is the divine author of this book, as with all of Scripture. But Daniel is the human author who prophesied things to come with 100% accuracy 100% of the time. So that's the author. It's Daniel. Now, what about the audience of this book? The audience of this book is the people of Judah, the two southern tribes. Now, I'm going to give quite a few dates here this morning and a lot of information. And again, if you'll um, download the information online, you can go back and review some of this. But a few of these dates I'm going to give are really important just as you read the Bible and read it, especially in the Old Testament. You remember in 931 B.C., an important date, the, the, the ten northern kingdoms, uh, tribes of Israel, split off from the two southern tribes in 931 B.C. And then about 200 years later, in 722 B.C., another important date to remember, the ten northern tribes get carted off by the Assyrians into captivity. So all that's left is these two uh, southern tribes. And now it's their turn to go into captivity. And they're going to be taken away in three waves or three stages or three deportations to the land of Babylon. And the year in, at the beginning here of, of Daniel is 605 B.C. That's when the first wave of deportation is going to begin. So this defeat occurs in three deportations. Now, why are the two southern tribes being carried away by the Babylonians into captivity? There's, there's two main reasons. One is they had failed and ignored the sabbatical year that God had placed upon them. You remember every seventh day on the Jewish calendar was a Sabbath day, but then every seventh year was a sabbatical year, a Sabbath year. They weren't to plow their fields or, or, uh, or harvest grain or grow crops. Uh, the sixth year, God said, I'll give you so much bounty that you can take a year off and give that seventh year to me, and then I'll begin to bless you again. Now, you can imagine what happened is the people had that bounty in that sixth year, and they thought, man, what a bad time to not plant our fields. And so they stole that sabbatical year from God for a period of 490 years. For 490 years, they stole every seventh year from God. And so God says, if you're going to steal those years from me, you think you're getting away with it, what I'm going to do is there's been 70 of those sabbatical years that you owe me, so I'm going to send you in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. There's an important principle here. If God's people wouldn't give God the Sabbath he required, God would take it from them. And I think that happens to a lot of believers today. There's things that God's commanded us to give to him. And if we don't give to him what he's commanded, God is going to get it from us one way, for, one way or another. My desire in my life is to go ahead and give God what he's commanded and what he desires from me so he doesn't have to come and take it from me. But that's the first reason they go into captivity, and that's why it's 70 years. But ignoring the Sabbath was uh, by no means the only sin in Judah. The main sin was idolatry. They literally had been swallowed up by the idolatry of their culture. And because of that, God sends them into captivity. Um, a really good chapter to understand, it really helps you understand a lot of the Old Testament, is Deuteronomy 28. In that chapter, in the first 14 verses, God tells the Jewish people all the blessings, all the covenant blessings He'll give to them if they obey. And then beginning in verse 15, all the way through verse 68, 
He gives all of the curses that will come upon them if they don't keep covenant with him. And they, they get more severe as you go along. And the final discipline from God, if his people won't come back to him, is he says, I'm going to send a foreign nation, a people whose language you do not know, and they're going to come and they're going to carry your children and your wives away into captivity. And so God here is fulfilling his word to Judah and coming and having them taken away uh, back from Deuteronomy chapter 28. So that's the audience. The audience is Judah. They're in captivity at this time. They're being hauled off in various waves. Now, what's the aim of this book? Why did Daniel write this book? What's the message of it? Well, in the 6th century B.C., as you can imagine, uh, hope was at a low tide in Judah. They've had a string of bad kings. Uh, They're under the control of the Babylonians, and they look around, and it seems like God's word to them had failed. It seemed like history was going backwards. It seemed like God is failing to keep the covenant he made with Abraham and with David. The Jewish people are going back where they came from. Can you see, again, the irony in this? Where did Abraham come from? Abraham, their father, came from Ur of the Chaldees, down from Babylon into the land of Canaan. And now they're going back where they came from. And he mentions here in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 1, the land of Shinar, which takes our mind all the way back to the Tower of Babel, back to Genesis 10 and 11. But it looks like history is being rewound. And Daniel wants the people to know that in spite of how things look, God's plan is true and it's still on track. God's going to keep covenant with Israel. Now, of course, the people have to repent, but restoration will come, the Messiah will come, the kingdom will be established, Israel will be restored. So in this book, we're going to see as we go through it, Daniel drags us across all of history, from his own day all the way until the time of the coming of the Messiah and the setting up of his kingdom. And he takes us all the way to the end of the story to give us hope so that we can know that in spite of how bad things might look, God's in control and God is going to fulfill his purposes. So we can sum up the message of Daniel like this. I have it in your outline there this morning, but that that God is in control no matter how things look. And his kingdom's going to come someday and be set up on this earth so you and I can live in hope and faithfulness in the meantime. You say that again, God's in control no matter how things look. His kingdom is one day going to fill the earth. So you and I can live in hope and faithfulness in the meantime. Now, we need this message today. In spite of how things look, God's in control. Things look like a lot of times God's not in control. We wonder. Our world looks more and more chaotic and confused all the time. There's rebellion and riots, unrest, deception pandemics. But God is writing this book to let them know and to let us know that in spite of present appearances, God's in control. And Daniel's going to blend together two main themes, prophecy, the end time, and piety in the meantime, how we live. He blends these two together, prophecy and piety. There's prophecy, and then there's the pious life you and I are to live. And he's telling us here that the end time informs and transforms how we live in the meantime. The meantime today is tied to the end time. This present world is to be navigated in light of the future. So knowing what lies ahead should change how we live today. 
Paul House puts it like this. This is a great statement. He says, Daniel is a story of kingdoms, human kingdoms that rise and fall, God's kingdom, which rises and remains. The kingdoms of this world are passing, but the kingdom of God is coming to pass, and we need to live in the meantime in light of that great truth, and Daniel is going to help us with that that as we go along through this book. Now, the final bit of backdrop for us is uh, the arrangement of this book or the structure, and I've got a slide here that hopefully will uh, help clarify this for us, but the book kind of neatly divides into to two halves, Daniel 1 to 6, 7 to 12. In Daniel uh, 1 to 6, it's historical. Um, you have six stories that we'll go through, many sto- the stories that many of us uh, have known since we're a child. In Daniel 7 to 12, it's prophetic. There's four visions. Daniel 1 to 6, Daniel's going to interpret other people's dreams, but in Daniel 7 to 12, an angel's going to interpret Daniel's dreams. Um, In Daniel 1 to 6, Daniel speaks in the third person, but in Daniel 7 through 12, he's going to speak a lot in the first person. And Daniel 1 to 6 is about the meantime. It's how we live now in, in the midst of a culture where we're exiles. Daniel 7 to 12 is going to deal more uh, with the end time, with what's coming in the future. But living now in the meantime in light of the end time uh, that's coming. So that's a brief sketch here of the setting of this book. So uh, again, we're going to develop a lot of this stuff as we go along. I know this is a lot of information this morning, but we'll we'll develop a lot of this and bring a lot of this to light as we go along more. Let's go ahead and get into the the book in verses 1 and 2. We've got the setting. Now let's look at what I call the sovereignty. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 is a prologue to the book, and it's a distinct unit. You notice it begins and ends with chronological markers that kind of identify the beginning and the end of Daniel's career. It starts in the the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim in 605, and notice the very last verse, verse 21, and Daniel continued to the first year of Cyrus the king, 539 B.C., a period of almost seven decades. So it it gives us kind of an overview or a distinct unit or a summary of Daniel's life. Now, the first two verses immerse us into the action. They plunge us into the story. And we see that Daniel's story is part of a much bigger story, which is true of all of us. And these first two verses kind of set up the rest of the book. Now, I want you to see something here in these first two verses. Verse 1 is historical. It's history. It's what's happening. But verse 2 is theological. It's going to tell us what's happening behind history. So verse 1 of Daniel is here's what's happening, but verse 2 is going to tell us what's happening behind what's happening. We're going to move from just the historical to the theological. And these opening verses are going to identify the main characters and themes that are woven through this book. Now, a little historical background. As the book of Daniel opens, the world scene is changing. There's been a dramatic power shift. The year is 605 B.C., If you know anything about uh, ancient Near Eastern history, the Assyrians have dominated the world for the last 300 years. They've been the great power. They're the ones that hauled off the, the, the northern tribes into captivity in 722 B.C. But something dramatic happened in 612 B.C. The Babylonians, with a couple of allies, defeat the Assyrians, who've dominated for 300 years. The city of Nineveh is leveled. By the way, that's a fulfillment of the prophecy of Nahum in the Bible. He prophesied the destruction of Nineveh. 
So the Assyrians are wiped out. They're no longer the great superpower, which leaves two other powers who are kind of vying to, to be the top dog. It leaves Babylon and Egypt. And I've got a, a map up here for those of us maybe a little geographically challenged. Um, you can see there in the middle, Jerusalem. And of course, you have the Babylonian Empire here over to the east and to the north. And then you have the kingdom of Egypt. So they're kind of then the two superpowers that are left. But in, in May of 605 B.C., the Egyptians come from the south up north. The Babylonians come over, and you can see there right north of Syria the word Carchemish. And in May of 605, the Babylonians and the Egyptians meet there to kind of figure out who's going to be the top dog. And the Babylonians uh, whip the Egyptians badly. And so that's a very important event, May 605, because after that, after he defeats the, the Egyptians there in Carchemish, Nebuchadnezzar goes down into Syria and down into Judah and consolidates that area because whoever was the, the leading power of the day always controlled that area in between. So with the, the Egyptians out of the way, Nebuchadnezzar moves in uh, to take Judah. And that's where we read here in verse 1, in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, the word there, besieged it, we think, you know, kind of to circle the city, and this is a long siege that takes a long time. The word literally just means confined or initiated conflict. This wasn't a long siege. Jehoiakim uh, gave up very quickly because he realized it was futile to stand in the way of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar makes Jehoiakim, who, by the way, is a wicked king. I mean, he's the third from the last king of Judah. He makes him his, his, his puppet or his vassal underneath um, his control. Now, when we come to verse 2, verse 2 is going to give the history behind the history. Look how it begins. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The word Lord, there's Adonai. It means supreme master. Yahweh, the, the great God, he, he's Adonai. He's, he's the supreme master. And notice it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim of Judah into his hands. Now, for those of you who like these kind of things, in verses 1 and 2 here, uh, there's five verbs. It says, Nebuchadnezzar came, and Nebuchadnezzar besieged. And then it says, Nebuchadnezzar brought, and Nebuchadnezzar brought. But the middle verb there in these five verbs is God gave. Nebuchadnezzar came, Nebuchadnezzar besieged. Nebuchadnezzar brought, Nebuchadnezzar brought. But in the middle of all of that, this middle verb is Adonai gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you're just looking at this on the outside in history, it looks like Nebuchadnezzar came, and the reason he defeated Jehoiakim is because he was stronger militarily than Jehoiakim was. That's what it looks like on the outside. But God wants us to see the theology behind the history, that it's God himself, it's Adonai that gave Jehoiakim into his hands. This highlights here for us at the very beginning the sovereignty of God. And this is often called the subtle sovereignty of God. God is at work invisibly and unseen, bringing about His will. Um, I like what somebody said years ago, history is His story. God's the one who's in control. And one thing we all need to remember is the Bible is a book about God. That's what the Bible is. It's a book about God. It begins with God who created the heavens and the earth. 
And Daniel is a book about God. And at the very outset, the one thing he wants us to know above everything is that God's the one um, who rules and is in control. There's 78 occurrences of names and titles for God in Daniel. 14 times he's called the Most High God. We often read the book of Daniel. We think, well, you know, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're the heroes of the story. No, the hero of the story in the book of Daniel is God himself. God dominates the story, and the book of Daniel is thick with the presence and the power of God. He overshadows it all. God's the one who's in control. There's an old story about a cowboy that wasn't very smart, and he went to get an insurance policy. And the insurance agent asked him if he'd ever had any accidents. And he said, no. He says, not, I can, not that I can think of. He says, although one time a horse kicked me in the head and another time a rattlesnake bit me on the leg. The insurance agent said, well, don't you call those accidents? And he said, no. He says, they did it on purpose. <laughs> well, I like that. God does what he does on purpose. There aren't any accidents with God. God, not man or circumstances, is sovereign. And God rules and overrules in the affairs of men. God has his hand on the wheel of history. God guides and governs all things to their appointed end. Now, to kind of rub it in the face of the the people of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, he seizes all the vessels and takes them back to to Babylon, to to the, the temples of his gods. That was standard practice in ancient times. And it was a demonstration that your God was stronger than the God of the people you defeated. Um, conquering a nation was conquering their God. If the people were losers, then their God was a loser. And there are about 50 temples back in Babylon, and these articles are taken there. By the way, it's interesting. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 11, 70 years later, when the people of Israel, the people of Judah, come back to the land, in Ezra 1.11, it says they brought with them 5,400 articles and vessels that had been taken by the Babylonians. So this wasn't just a, you know, a few glasses they took with them here or a few goblets. It's 5,400 articles and vessels they take. And it, it's fascinating here. Right at the beginning, he mentions the vessels of the house of God being taken to Babylon because this is going to anticipate the story in Daniel chapter 5. Remember that story? Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, has a big drunken orgy, and he calls for them to go get the vessels of Yahweh and to bring them in there for them to participate. So it's setting this up for us that, by the way, they took these vessels that are later going to appear um, in chapter 5. But the point here is is that Daniel wants us to know from the outset that despite how things appear, that God is the one um, who's in control. God's running the show. He wants us to know that at the beginning of this book. And in verse 2, it says, The Lord, that is Adonai, gave Jehoiakim into his hand, but it says, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and literally there in the Hebrew, it's the house of the God. It's Elohim, the house of the God, Elohim. If you go down to verse 9, again, it calls God the God. And down in verse 17, it says again, the God. So they took the vessels from the house of the God, and Nebuchadnezzar took them and put them in the house of his God. But his God, of course, um, is no God at all. But again, it's just highlighting God's sovereignty. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that God does always as he pleases, 
only as he pleases and all that he pleases. Someone put it like this years ago, and I like this. It's a simple way to state it. To say that God is sovereign is to simply say that he's God. To say God's sovereign is just to say that he's God. And that's something that every one of us here this morning can take into our everyday life as we find ourselves more and more living as exiles in this perplexing world that we live in. We can rest assured, every one of us here, that God is in control of our lives, that God's in control of our nation, that God's in control of our elections that are upcoming, that God's in control no matter how things may look on the outside. And I don't know about you, but there's few things that are more comforting to me uh, than that. Regardless of how things may look, God's in control. Man proposes, but God disposes. After uh, World War II ended, Winston Churchill was talking about his job as the prime minister and about God. And he said this, he says, I wouldn't have God's job for anything. Mine is hard enough, but his is much more difficult, and he can't even resign. (laughs) Now, that's bad theology, right? God won't resign. God can't resign because our God reigns. He's the sovereign God who disposes You know, think about this for a moment as you read this story. God is sovereign. There's no doubt about this. God's in control. But the sovereignty of God is a humble sovereignty. Think about that. God is sovereign, but he's humble. It's a humble sovereignty. God allows his house, his temple, to be ransacked and to be pillaged by the Babylonians and for them to carry these holy articles away to Babylon. And the whole way they're there, they're they're mocking and blaspheming the God of Judah because their God, Marduk, is stronger. God allows himself to be humiliated and to be shamed. And the reason he did that is he was willing to be humiliated and mocked and suffer shame if it would awaken his people to their need and call them and draw them back to himself. We have a God that's a sovereign God. A God that that rules all things, but his sovereignty is a humble sovereignty. And don't we see the same quality in Jesus Christ? Philippians 2 says he existed in the form of God, but he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humble sovereign who is willing to come and be shamed and be humiliated. And he did that so that you and I can be forgiven and so that we can be lifted up. That's our God and that's our Savior. And if you've never trusted in him, that's what you need to do this morning. I pray that you've seen this morning his greatness and his power and that he rules and controls all things. You need to come to him this morning and trust in him and believe in him and receive him to be your Savior. Our Lord Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of the cross, raised on the third day, ascended to heaven, who's coming again someday to set up his kingdom that will never end. If you don't know him today, trust in him and believe in him and receive him as your Savior from sin. You can do that right now as we pray together. Oh, Father, we do look to you this morning for anyone who's listening who's never taken Jesus to be their Savior, the one who existed in the form of God, very God of very God, but he emptied himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Oh, Father, we thank You that He suffered humiliation and shame for us so that we can be forgiven and be exalted. Father, if there's anyone who's never trusted in Jesus and taken Him to be their Savior, may they do it right now this morning. May they bow the knee and bow the heart to Him and trust in Him as their Savior. Father, for those of us who know You, just reaffirm in our hearts again and cement in our hearts and minds who You really are, Your sovereign control and Your majesty of all things, that You're the one that disposes. Father, in the great victories in our lives, but in the shocking setbacks as well, that you're sovereign and you're in control. We can trust you with our lives, with our families, our businesses, the future of our nation. It's all in your hands. It's you're at the wheel of history. Well, Father, help us to learn these truths more and more as we continue in this study in the coming days. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.